You're listening to Podfabula Productions, a mashup of fiction, nonfiction, ideas, and commentary, created and narrated by your author host, Victor Aquista. Today's episode, American Ripper, the enigma of America's serial killer cop. Warning. Some of the material discussed in today's podcast might be disturbing. It should be disturbing. Today's narration is nonfiction, true crime, taken from the newly released book, American Ripper. Jack the Ripper was an unidentified serial killer thought to be responsible for murders in slum portions of London from 1888 and possibly through to 1891. The brutal killings were never solved and led to widespread fear and notoriety. Author Patrick Kendrick departs from his usual mystery thriller books to don the hat of investigative journalist. In so doing, he profiles both the psyche and behaviors of an American serial killer, Gerard Schaefer. Egregious as these murders are, they are made chillingly worse when we realize the man committing them is a police officer. What drives someone trained to uphold the law to murder innocent victims? I'm going to read selected portions from a review of this book by Midwest Review before narrating two excerpts. True crime readers looking for an in-depth coverage of a high-profile serial killer's impact in the 1960s and 70s will find American Ripper eye-opening reading, which pulls no punches in its coverage of Florida law enforcement officer and killer Gerard John Schaefer. It should be noted that American Ripper is no light leisure crime story. This is an in-depth study that excels in including and reviewing court transcripts, evidence lists, interviews, and other technical papers relating to Schaefer's story. While this adds length, depth, and a form of complexity that may stymie casual readers, it will especially delight law enforcement, psychologists, and social issues readers seeking an approach that embraces the entirety of the process. As a further cautionary note, American Ripper also includes case histories that capture moment-by-moment graphic experiences of victims and criminal. This is not a read for those who would lightly pursue a serial killer's modus operandi but a detailed exploration and description of his victims and how he lured them into dangerous territory through an amiable approach and the power of his police badge. The graphic nature of these descriptions of such preparations, again, may horrify and surprise readers not just because of their intricate planning, but because of the nature of the details. Kendrick includes memories of the victims who survived as well, juxtaposing their impressions with those of Schaefer. As facts emerge about his victims, his methods, and the fact that nobody realized the extent of Schaefer's dangerous behaviors before disaster struck, readers receive a gruesome, gripping, and startling discussion of not just a murderous threats, but justice and law enforcement systems gone awry. Interviews, court proceedings, written reports, and notes are all detailed with an eye to following how one man became a clever, sadistic murderer. The details provide in-depth coverage and leave no stone unturned, including Kendrick's own visits to and encounters with Schaefer, 
his interviews with families of victims, and his documentation of the local, regional, and global responses to serial killer threats. The intricate notes made for this exposé are woven into a story that reads with the tension and drama of fiction, but delves into and analyzes all facts and connections in a well-researched, documented piece. American Ripper is a powerful survey of not just one man's killing spree, but the processes of law enforcement, justice, and psychiatric evaluation in modern America. More than just a crime story or a saga of innocence and guilt, it's an indictment of the evolving psychosis and how it gained ground in an environment replete with conflicting information, processes, and purposes. The broader questions posed by American Ripper make it highly recommended reading beyond its likely audience of true crime aficionados, hopefully moving into law enforcement, legal process, and psychology circles as an in-depth example of not just a serial killer's approaches, but the systems that allowed him to continue his crime spree unchecked. Listen now to two excerpts from American Ripper, The Enigma of America's Serial Killer Cop, by Patrick Kendrick. In September of 1985, after trying for almost two years to obtain permission to interview Schaefer in person, I was finally allowed to meet with him. I was told I could only have about one hour, but there was a mix-up when I arrived at the prison, and they believed me to be his attorney. I did not clarify their mistake, and in the end, I was able to obtain several hours' worth of taped interviews with the infamous killer cop. Admittedly, I was intimidated. Though we'd been corresponding through the mail for about two years, I was no more comfortable meeting with this accused murderer than if I were meeting Jack the Ripper himself. My fears were alleviated, though, when they brought the man into the cramped, pale, citrus-colored room where we'd be locked in, alone, and without guards for the next several hours. Schaefer was an overweight, doughy-looking fellow with nerd-like black horn-rimmed glasses, slumped shoulders, and an expression that looked as though he would jump ten feet high if I were to suddenly clap my hands together. He was slovenly attired, more so than one would expect even a prisoner to be, and he spoke in a boyish voice that belied his thirty-nine years. We'd spoken on the phone before, but I was still not prepared for this anachronism this man accused of horrific mutilation-type murders, who now stood grinning and blushing like a schoolboy who'd been caught stealing cookies. As we spoke, I observed his facial expressions go through a variety of changes, sometimes complete mood swings, where one moment he'd be expressing his anger and frustration at being wrongly accused, and the next he'd be giggling about the absurdity of it all. It was as if his face was made of putty and could practically transform his appearance, something I later read Ted Bundy was able to do as well. I began to get a feel for Schaefer, if you will, and I tried to put myself into the position of a young, confused teenage girl, and that is when I scared myself. I almost understood, knowing how gullible some young girls are, where this emotional chameleon could gain the confidence of a troubled person who was looking for a listener, a problem-solver, perhaps in the form of an older, more experienced person. But knowing what I knew, I could also imagine him allowing me that confidence in him as we drove off onto a bumpy dirt road, drinking beer, laughing as he got out of the car and opened the trunk. Then he would not be laughing anymore. He'd still be grinning, incessantly, 
as he'd force me to put the noose around my neck at gunpoint and hang me for a while, not letting me die yet, but playing with me as a cat would a near-dead mouse. Then, when the play was almost all gone, he would take out his heavy-bladed hunting knife, and with the sound a stake makes when dropped on a tile floor, the blade would dig into my spinal cord. When I screamed, he would shoot me in the mouth, aiming madly for where the irritating sound was coming from, and blow the lower jaw away from my face. And if, by some perverse rule of nature, my brain and heart still kept me alive and struggling, then the blade would flash again, perhaps severing my arm or my legs below the knees, so that if I were somehow still living, I would be reduced to a quivering, bleeding torso with eyes, and I could watch him do the same to my friend, who would be, by now, staring catatonic at the writhing mass of flesh that used to be her friend. Dark thoughts can emerge when one immerses oneself into the study of such a monster, and admittedly, they have stuck in my mind since. I interviewed Schaefer as professionally, as competently as I could, while these visions flashed sporadically in my mind. I was attentive. I wanted the truth, if it was at all possible for him to tell even one small part of it, but I was also wary and on guard. They locked the two of us in a tiny, soundproof room, so no one could hear our attorney-client-privileged conversation. And though he was handcuffed and appeared as menacing as Fred Flintstone, I realized others had mistaken his harmlessness, too. Knowing his propensity for publicity, was it too much to imagine he might make a move on my life? Wouldn't that get him the limelight he sought so fervently? Sure, he would deny he killed me, another prisoner snuck in and strangled me, knocking him unconscious first, and I let my imagination run wild thinking about the stories Schaefer had the potential to fabricate, and I knew stranger things could happen, and I was prepared. I had already picked out a soft spot on the side of his head, on the temple, where if I were put in a life-or-death situation, I might, with some difficulty in an attempt to save myself, force a sharpened number two pencil into his brain. I also knew at that point I've been working on this project too long. Sue Wells and Nancy Trotter stood near the gleaming bandshell not far from Stewart's courthouse and felt the bristling heat of a new Florida day begin to caress their shoulders. They waited patiently for their ride, occasionally shuffling a stone underfoot and engaging in sleepy, insignificant conversation. They wondered if perhaps the deputy would not show. After all, he was a cop. Surely he had more important business to attend to or family to occupy his Saturday. They did not have to wonder very long. A light blue car with white interior and bucket seats pulled up near them. The driver was Gerard Schaefer. He picked us up between 9.15 and 9.30, but he was in plain clothes and in his own car, Nancy would later relate. He told us they switched him to be a plain clothes cop today and that, on those days, he just does observations. He started driving toward Jensen Beach, and he asked us if we wanted to see an old Spanish fort that was on the river. We said, okay. Then, as Schaefer drove along A1A, Nancy in the front seat, Sue in the back, the following scene began to take place. Schaefer pulled off the paved road onto a predetermined dirt road that led back into a wooded area on Hutchinson Island, a long, narrow strip of land that runs from Martin to St. Lucie County. 
It runs parallel with the coasts of Stewart and Jensen Beach and farther to the north into Lucy County. Indian River separates the island from the coast on the west side, and the Atlantic Ocean stretches out along the east side. In 1972, before the many massive condominium high-rises sprang up out of the brine-soaked mud, it was a relatively deserted island. The only inhabitants were the few people who could afford the luxury of owning secluded beach houses on the ocean side. The west side of the island was virtually uninhabited, as well as densely covered with thick underbrush. Schaefer wove through the underbrush and parked his car near a dilapidated shed. The shed was held together with barely more than a few rusty nails, and the fact that the wind could not readily get to it through the thick foliage. The girls got out, feigning interest. It was somewhat of a letdown compared to the Spanish fort they were anticipating. It was actually just an old storage shed. Inside were some soggy, black-with-wet-rot boards and some equally decayed fruit baskets. The smell of damp fungus was sharp to dry nostrils, and animals and adolescents had stained the dark corners with urine. Now and again, something black and wet-looking would slither or hop through the grass that grew between the floorboards. Schaefer pointed out along the river, and with a sweeping gesture of his hand explained how and where old Spanish boats used to come in to dock, his thick fingers pointing to places along the reed-covered bank. The girls grew impatient. After all, they were missing out on the beach, but they continued to be polite, and soon they were back in the car and ready to leave. Then the hospitable deputy's attitude began to change. He became very cold. He seemed distracted and began to ask questions, questions that were unexpected and totally inconsistent with the courteous behavior of the deputy up to now. His movements became more mechanical, as if his actions were becoming a step-by-step -step process, as if what he was about to do was well thought out in advance. His large, once-rounded shoulders seemed to draw back tensely. His mouth was an angry slit in his face. He was becoming excited. Schaefer's own writings perhaps best describe what he felt, and undoubtedly what he intended to do. The following is an excerpt from his writings that would later be seized in a search of his belongings. In order to remain unapprehended, the perpetrator of an execution-style murder such as I have planned must take precautions. One must think out well in advance a crime of this nature in order for it to work. We will need an isolated area, accessible by car and a short hike away from any police patrols or parking lovers. The execution site must be carefully arranged for a speedy execution once the victim has arrived. Ideally would be two sawhorses, with two-by-four between them, a noose attached to an overhanging limb of a tree and another rope to pull away the two-by-four, preferably by car. A grave must be prepared in advance, away from the place of execution. The victim could be any one of the many women who flocked to Miami and Fort Lauderdale during the winter months. Even two victims would not be difficult to dispose of, since women are less wary when traveling in pairs. In any case, it may be more preferable to bind and gag the victims before transporting them to the place of execution. Then again, depending on what torture or defilement is planned for them, other items may be useful. The book is fascinating. The book is disturbing. The book deals with facts and truth. Fortunately, 
this serial killer was apprehended. I'm including links in the show notes for those of you curious enough and brave enough to learn more. I hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode. Check out the show notes for information about Podfabla Productions' Facebook page, my author website, and the eight streaming platforms that carry the show. Please subscribe, tell your friends, and keep an eye out for my upcoming suspense novel, Serpent Rising. Until next time, 